Well, you may recall that last week in the story of the book of Ruth, we left off at a deeply dissatisfying place. The first five verses present an opening scene of sorrow and sadness, of grief and loss. And if we were watching it as a play instead of reading it as a text, Naomi's life would appear to be broken beyond repair. The lights would snap off, the curtain would slam shut, and everyone would be in darkness. And that is what we have in the prologue of Ruth, a scene in Naomi's life, an opening scene that sets the stage for what is to come. We don't get the whole story in those first five verses, just a scene. And here's something to think about. The fact that it's the first scene informs us that there is more to follow, that we are beginning to read a story that's still being written. We have seen one, admittedly a very harsh one, but still just one part of a chapter in Naomi's life. Some of you here this morning, some who were here last week, some of your family members not here, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers are in the midst of a hard scene. A period of sadness, a period of sorrow, of challenges and frustrations. But as we will see in the book of Ruth, even as we read about the tragedy that is real and dreadful, there's more to her story that is still being written. And there's more to yours too. God is at work behind the scenes. Our Father, we come to this part of our worship where we simply want to hear from you. We recognize that we could easily get in the way, that we could throw up barriers, that we could refuse to listen. But Lord, we truly do want to hear from you today. So save us from those sorts of silly things. Penetrate our minds and our hearts with your good word, with your words of life. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the part of the book that we are exploring uh, today, Ruth, uh, chapter 1, the remaining part of chapter 1, continues in what is, for the most part, a downward arc. And some of you are like, oh, seriously? I'm looking for it to come up. Well, hang in there. Um, I said for the most part it's a downward arc and we need to deal with it. We pick up in verse 6 of chapter 1, having learned of the awful fate of a woman named Naomi. With her husband and two sons, she has traveled into a foreign land to escape a famine in Israel. And while in this land, which is called Moab, Naomi's husband dies. But her two sons marry. So for a time, her, her family was growing. She has two daughter-in-laws now, Ruth and Orpah, but then both her sons die. So Naomi is left a widow. A widow in her day was in a difficult spot, a childless widow, even more destitute, a childless widow in a foreign land, just about as hard a situation as one could imagine. Naomi is devastated. She is empty. She is literally barren, as we have just read. She's unable to provide for her daughters-in-law in any meaningful way. She's facing the struggle even of providing for herself, so she decides that she's going to go back where she came from. 
Verse 6 says, and you might follow along if you've got your Bible open, keep it open. We'll just, I'll try to reference the verses. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So there are going to be times, I think, in your reading of the Bible where you're going to come across a phrase, and it may, may put you in mind of something else that you've read in the Bible. And here, this language in Ruth 1.6 for me, is reminiscent of the language that you find in Luke 15. In Luke 15, there's another well-known story. This actually is a parable. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. Both the prodigal son, who took his inheritance and squandered every penny of it in a, in a foreign land, and Naomi, who has essentially traded her inheritance when she left the promised land and went into Moab, both find themselves broken, powerless, in a strange land. And both realize there's more available to them at home than what they currently have. And both are completely humbled by their circumstances. In the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15, verses 17 to 20, we read this, but when he came to himself, that's the prodigal son, when he came to his senses, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And Ruth 1.6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return. Ruth is returning. Naomi is returning. She, like the prodigal son, is turning and going in another direction. She's going home. The bread has been restocked in Bethlehem, the place that is called the house of bread. Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So this initial plan is for Naomi and her two daughters-in-law all to go to Bethlehem. But at some point in this journey, um, and bless you, and I, I would hazard to guess it was very early in the process, the cloudy plans formulated in grief came into clearer view. Why would Naomi want her young daughters to follow her to a foreign land only to potentially replicate the very scenario that she is leaving? Why would she want them to go to a place where as widows they would have even less standing than in their own home country and less of a prospect of remarrying? See, Naomi is husbandless, and Naomi is childless, but she doesn't want that for Ruth and Orpah. With their best interest in mind, she seeks to relieve them of whatever obligation they may have felt toward her. Verse 8, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So I mentioned last week that when we read through the book of Ruth, we're really reading a story that is somewhat well-known for its economy of words, a lot of facts. But it is up to us to ponder over them. It is up, for, up to us to sit with them and say, what does this mean? And here we just have these two verses that seem very straightforward, but what we have actually is a remarkably tender exchange. You have this elderly woman who's trying to 
bid her daughters-in-law to leave her so they can have a better life. Friend, could you encourage others to do what is best for them if you knew it would be worse for you? Could you be that selfless? It doesn't come easy. But Naomi is. And maybe she's a little bit like Jonah here, I think. You remember the prophet Jonah? You know his story? Jonah the prophet that ran from the call of God. Remember that God wanted him to go and, and, and preach to the Ninevites that they could be converted. And he, he hated the Ninevites and he did not want to go uh, to do what God wanted him to do. So God gave him a call and he said, no thanks. I'm going to go in a different direction. So he boards a ship and he heads in the opposite direction. And do you remember what happened then? What happened after that? It was a storm, great storm came upon the ship and scared everybody and it was a serious storm and the sailors are trying to figure out how to get the boat through it and they're tossing stuff off and, and, and just trying to survive. And Jonah says this, he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Toss me, just get rid of me and this whole thing will settle down. Well, whether Naomi is right or not, we can debate, but what Naomi believes is clear. She believes like Jonah that God is against her. And in verse 20 to 21, she says, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. See, she sees herself as being under the judgment of God. And like Jonah, who knew the storm was God's doing, because of his behavior, she's very sorry for her daughters-in-law that they should suffer for what God is doing to her. Look at verse 13. Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. What I'm going through is hard, but it's bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So figuratively, Naomi's saying to Ruth and Orpah, throw me out of the boat. Walk away. I'm a bad penny. This isn't working out. She's willing to make this journey to Bethlehem alone. But she dismisses her daughter, daughters-in-law in an interesting way. You see, in, again, in verse 8 and 9, with a blessing. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. See, these ladies have been faithful wives to their husbands, faithful daughters-in-law to Naomi, they have been kind. They have done it right. May the Lord deal kindly with you, be good to you as you've been good to the dead and to my sons and to me. The Lord grant that you might find rest. And you can imagine if anybody needed anything in that moment, they needed some rest. They needed some peace. They, they had endured a great amount of sorrow. Their lives have been thrown up in tumult that you might find rest. But where to find this rest? Each of you in the house of her husband. Go and remarry and find consolation in a new relationship and be free of your connection and your obligation to me. That's what she says to these ladies. And she calls upon here and she hopes for the Lord to deal kindly with them. So we've got to take our time here just for a second and try to pull this apart a little bit. Naomi understands and has full faith that God is sovereign over everything. She has experienced a lot of trials. She probably has lots of reasons for doubts 
and anger, but look, she understands and doesn't waver from this that God is sovereign over everything. The, the one who is the God of the universe is the ruler of the nations, is the Lord of families. And so she commends her daughters to him. She seeks the hesed of God, the kindness of God. May, may God deal kindly with you. That's what that Hebrew word is, hesed. It is a tough one to translate perfectly in English. Daryl Block describes it this way. He says, a covenant term wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God, love and covenant faithfulness and mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty, in short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. May God give you all of those good things. The Lord give them to you. You see, Naomi here doesn't feel particularly blessed, and she doesn't feel particularly loved of God. But she knows that he can and prays that he will love and bless her daughters-in-law. Which means that she has a faith, a genuine faith in God and what he's capable of that perseveres in even the most trying of times. Her faith is not dependent upon the equilibrium of her life. Her faith is not dependent upon uh, prosperity in her life. Her faith is, is not dependent upon smooth sailing. Not at all. She believes that God is dealing bitterly with her. She also believes if that's what he's doing, then he's right. We, if we sense that we're under the judgment of God, are we willing to say God is right like David did in Psalm 51? Thou art blameless when thou dost judge. Or do we say, I don't like what I'm going through, and I think you've done it to me, God. And I'd like to, to use C.S. Lewis's terms, I'd like to put him in the dock. I'd like to put him on the stand. I'd like to, like to cross-examine this almighty, because I think he's actually messing up a bit. God, why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why did you allow this? How come this happened the way it did? Does that sound familiar? Naomi isn't that way. But what's interesting, she's not that way for herself, and she doesn't project any of that onto her daughter's-in-law because she knows this. Just as God is able to, to bring judgment, he is also able to bring mercy. He is just as able to reward noble acts as he is to judge the sinful ones. Do you see that? And, and she understands that, that her lot doesn't have to be her daughter's-in-law lot. So she speaks and seeks to release her daughters uh, from any obligations they have to her. But Ruth and Orpah are not going to have it. Which, as I read through that, I'm like, well, that's pretty refreshing, actually. Because here we have, because in-law relationships aren't always the best. Can you get an amen on that? That's weak. <laughs> They're not. It's a tough thing, it's an emotional thing, and some, sometimes in-law relationships are, are not as sturdy as we would like them to be. There's a section I do in premarital counseling, how to keep your in-laws from becoming outlaws. <laughs> it, it's important, we have to talk about those things. It's a powerful dynamic at work, but look, these ladies have been through a lot with Naomi in a relatively short period of time, and they clearly have a strong affection for their mother-in-law. And that's a beautiful thing. And certainly one of the lessons, I'm not unpacking it here today, we don't have that kind of time, but one of the lessons here to consider throughout this book is how do you treat your in-laws? Do you love them? Do you serve them? Do you give them the benefit of the doubt? Ruth and Orpah love Naomi. 
They have a strong affection for her, and that sets up a battle of wills. So Naomi ups her game, right? She's thought this through. She knows how she's going to win the argument. She makes the argument in a way that's going to seem strange to us. Not only is it going to seem strange to us, it's going to seem repulsive to us. When we push into this a little bit, we're going to go, ew. But here's the deal. It would have been an argument that was compelling in the ancient culture. She cites the principle of the Leverite marriage, to which you all said, thank you, Scott, for clearing that up. Let's move on. We all know what the Leverite marriage is. Now, the Leverite marriage in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10, a custom in those days recorded in God's word, the Leverite marriage is a type of marriage in which the brother of a deceased man is obligated to marry his brother's widow. So, you may have chosen one man, but if, if, if he should pass away, now you get his brother. And again, that's the part that makes people go, oh, because we don't choose partners that way. We choose partners based on what we love and what we want. And romance is beautiful. I, I like our way. But that was that way. So Naomi really just pulls it out and says, look, if we're going to follow the law, if we're going to follow the law, you're going to have to wait for me to have sons. And how's that going to happen since, number one, I have no husband, and number two, I'm too old. Even if I could bear sons, even if I'd have sons right, in, right now in my womb, are you going to wait for them to become of age so that they could marry, so that you could marry them and carry on this Leverite marriage law? You see, there's not a scenario in Naomi's mind that will turn out for the good of Ruth or Orpah. They have their whole lives ahead of them, while hers, she believes, is just limping to its close. And they would miss out on too much if they stay with this woman. So verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So Orpah didn't do anything wrong. Naomi's words were compelling. She believed them, and she did what she was told to do. She kissed her. She departed, but Ruth clung to her. I think the King James Version says clave. It's the idea of the word cleave, right, which means to join oneself to. So basically, Ruth's not going anywhere. I'm with you. She would not let go. She will not leave Naomi alone. There are times also in your Bible reading when you read those sorts of things and you understand them and you say, boy, I think this points to something greater. I think there's somebody else who isn't going to leave me alone. But back to Ruth, right? We all need a Ruth in our, in our lives, at least one, right? People who no matter what, they're going to stick with you. Abandonment is a great and a universal fear, especially if or when we've done something that deserves it. And the odds are good, sometimes we are going to do some things that deserve us to be abandoned. And we're scared about that. And we don't want to be. And we need friends like Ruth. Everybody ought to have at least one. And yet, as I said, it points to something greater. There's something more going on here. Because greater than any earthly friend we can have to fill this role is Jesus himself. Because our earthly relationships may fail. And adversity may lead some of our friends who we thought were friends to leave us. But Jesus is greater than any of them. And he makes these unfailing promises that just continue to resonate in us. 
I am with you always. Jesus says, I'm with you always. And I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. Yesterday on Christian radio, I heard an announcer say, you remember when everyone gave up on you and God decided to join them? Yeah, neither do I. <laughs> well, it was good. I was like, yeah, that's right. People will give up on you, but God will not. Do you remember that time God gave up on you? No, you don't. No, you don't. Because he won't. Ruth, selfless and devoted like Jesus, would not leave Naomi alone. And as John Piper put it, he said, Naomi painted the future black. And Ruth took her hand and walked into it with her. This loyalty on the part of Ruth matches and exceeds the selflessness of Naomi. It inserts a little glimmer of hope into this dismal narrative that even in the times of judges when everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes and everybody's chasing their own dreams and doing what they can to fulfill themselves, doing what they think is best for them, there are some who will do what is best for others. There are some. That's important for us to grasp here. It looked like a hopeless time. When we're feeling hopeless, it does look hopeless. But listen, there are those who will rally around you and who will do what's best for you, even if it costs them. Because Ruth, for Ruth to go with Naomi means more than just keeping her company on a journey, you know. It means that she's going to leave her family of origin. It means that she's going to leave the country that she loves. Have any of you ever experienced that? Can you even imagine what that is like? It means resigning herself as a young lady to a likely life of widowhood and childlessness. Widowhood, which is, is, is a, a, a vulnerable and hard estate in that culture, and childlessness, which would have been viewed by some as a curse. She would be maligned for it, but she's choosing it. It means moving to a new land. It means uh, moving to a place that she doesn't know, with customs that she's not familiar with, and people that she's yet to meet, and ways that she has to inculcate into her, into her way of being. It means not going back. When she goes with Naomi, she's saying, I'm not going back. The stories are told of Christian missionaries called one-way missionaries in the early 1900s who purchased one-way tickets departed their homeland, packed their belongings in coffins. They're not coming back. And they did not intend to return. They're going to die where they land. And that is Ruth's intention as well. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Wow. Wow. That's a covenant. That's a vow. That's what it reads like. That's what it is. And central to it is this idea, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. That's conversion. This is, this is a, a beautiful and literal picture of what it means to leave behind the old and walk into the new. And as it comes to one's life with God, to repent, which means to turn and go in a different direction, to repent, to renounce the way that you've been living, 
in order to embrace a new way of life. That's what we have here, a picture of repentance. And Jesus described this change by saying it this way, you must be born again. That's what has to happen. You must be born again. Everyone is born physically. That's, that's how we got here. That's why we're here now. But we must be reborn spiritually. And that is a work that God performs in us as he graciously opens our eyes to his truth in our need of him. He's willing. He's willing for us to be born again. Are you willing to be born again? Ruth's not only committing to Naomi, she's surrendering herself to Naomi's God. And you know what that leads me to believe? It's not in the text. I can't go too, too far with this thing, but I'm pretty sure of it. I think that in the 10 or so years that they had been together, Naomi's faith had made an impact on Ruth. I don't think this was a snap decision. I don't think this was an emotional uh, thing that she did. I think that she had seen her mother-in-law endure some of the hardest things in life and remain faithful to God and has seen God remain faithful to her. Somehow Ruth understands that even, and I think that's because of the totality of the witness of Naomi. Which Christian ought to inspire you to be thinking about what's the totality of my witness? Because people are always watching. You know that, right? They may not always be listening. But they are always watching. And what does your life say? What did Naomi's life say? Somehow, Ruth understands that even if God is a God of judgment, he's also a God of salvation, and he's also a God worth serving. She's come up with that. She's not just deciding on God based on one difficult or two difficult uh, trials in her life. She has a bigger picture than that. And she's not only willing to leave her Moabite gods, that she has come to believe in Naomi's God. She makes an oath. Verse 17. She makes an oath in Yahweh's name. The name of the Lord is on her lips. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. And you know what? Naomi can't argue with anything that Ruth is saying. So there it is. The mother-in-law is like, I give. You got me. I, 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 I got nothing. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, verse 22, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. So listen, friends, wrapping it up. If we take at face value Naomi's understanding of what has happened in her life and why, her returning to the promised land, to the city of Bethlehem, to the house of bread, is a literal act of repentance. Just like the prodigal son who came to his senses and realized that life on his own was not at all better than life with his father. He too realized there's bread in my father's house. Both Naomi and the prodigal son remind us of an important truth here this church. That is if we have strayed, if we have sinned, if we have stumbled, if we have missed the mark, if we have made a mess, if we have just not understood it all until God graciously made it clear, while we have breath, we have hope, you can return to God. You were made by him, for him, you belong with him. The pleasures of life that you want are found at his right hand. That is what the Bible says. And if you are not with him, you can be. 
There's a beauty here. You can return to God. John Piper put it this way in a message on this text. He said, don't ever think that the sin of your past means there is no hope for your future. Did you catch that? Don't ever think that the sin of your past means there's no hope for your future. Indeed, for years now, the Christian church has declared this mercy in the singing of, of a hymn called Softly and Tenderly. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching. Waiting for you and for me. Come home. Come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. Will you come home? Will you? Neither Naomi or the prodigal son had much confidence of a joyous reception at home. Or had anticipated the major turn of events that was in store for them. And both of them would be wrong. But that is me getting ahead of myself. We leave off at the end of the chapter, verse 22, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Very straightforward verse there. I wonder why on earth it's even in here. I'd like you to notice something, friend. That the possibility of this final verse, the final verse of this scene stands in great contrast to the desperation of the first verse. Because the chapter begins in a time of famine. But it ends at the start of the harvest. <laughs> there is an intimation here that, in fact, better times are ahead. Not a promise of a future that makes up for or erases the pain of the losses of the past, but a change of events that will make a hard life easier. And better yet, make it worth living. The story, this story, is still being written. And so is yours. And God is at work behind the scenes.